You might be wondering, it's not Christmas time. What's he doing with this on his pulpit? Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, so Amos chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So who was Amos? Well, he was a sheep breeder. And later on in chapter 7, we'll find out that he was a tender of sycamore fruit. What he was not was he was not a son of a prophet. Uh, He was not trained to be a prophet. He was basically a regular guy that the Lord called to be his spokesman to his generation. And Amos most likely was born in in the village of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is in the country, the, the southern kingdom of Judah. It's in the hill country of Judah, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, so Bethlehem would have been just to the north, because Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem. And Hebron was to the south of that. And then the Dead Sea would have been to the, to the east. So just kind of a geographical idea of where uh, Amos was from. So Amos was from Judea, or Judah, excuse me, but he was called to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Amos obeyed God's call, and he went. God says, go, speak to them, and God, or excuse me, and Amos went. He went to prophesy to Israel, and apparently he must have moved up there because later on in chapter 7, as he's been prophesying, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, which is up in Samaria, he's tired of hearing Amos's prophecies, and he tells him, go flee back to Judah. So that kind of gives you a clue. Well, he must have been up in, up in, uh, in Israel, the, the northern uh, kingdom of Israel at that time. So when was the book of Amos written? Well, Amos tells us it was during the days of King Uzziah uh, in Judah and Jeroboam the second king of Israel. There's two Jeroboams in the Old Testament, and this would have been the second one. So, you know, I always like to look at that, find out, you know, who's who was reigning, what kind of time was, and then what I like to do is I kind of go and do a little bit of digging around. What was it like? You know, what was what was the conditions like when Amos was? Um, called to be a, a, a prophet to God's people. Well, Jeroboam, the king of the northern tribes, Jeroboam II, he was a very successful military leader. Um, Israel had lost territory over the years to the Syrians in different battles. Well, Jeroboam II had recovered lost territory, and he had extended Israel to where its former boundaries, where its former limits were. He also recaptured for Israel... Uh, from Damascus uh, and Hamath, different areas, not Hamas, but Hamath, uh, different areas that had belonged to Judah. He captured them for Israel. And he reigned over Israel for 41 years. So if you think about it, it was, it was really a kind of a stable, at least militarily, it was a stable time. Politically, it was, it was stable. And, uh, and it was actually, it was, happened to be Israel's most profit, uh, prosperous prosperous, excuse me, prosperous time um, that Israel had basically ever known up until that time. So it was a very, you know, I look at our nation, our nation's very prosperous too. But with all of their outward prosperity, the nation itself was spiritually bankrupt. And that's why God called Amos to prophesy to Israel. 
Now he also mentions King Uzziah, who was the king of Judah, the southern two tribes of Israel. And the conditions in Judah were quite similar to, with at least with respect to prosperity, as it was for Israel. Uzziah was a good king for most of his reign. He too had accomplished many things uh, for Judah. During his reign, Judah was very prosperous as well. But in the latter years of of, uh, Uzziah's life, he became prideful. And he presumed to enter the temple and burn incense on the altar of incense, which only the priests were allowed to do. And the priests tried to stop him, but in his pride he did it anyways. And he was struck with leprosy, and he remained a leper until the day of his death. The nation of Judah was starting to sink lower and lower into idolatry like Israel, her neighbor to the north. So that was the condition that Amos was called to preach or to prophesy to Israel. And although Amos was called primarily to prophesy to Israel, he was also given prophecies concerning the nations around Israel, including Judah. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, during all that prosperity of the people of both Israel and Judah, they experienced a national, natural disaster. It was a very large earthquake, because at the end of verse 1, one more thing is mentioned concerning the time of Amos's ministry. It's two years before the earthquake. And you notice he doesn't really go into describing the earthquake. Why? Because everybody knew what that was. You know, uh, when I was, uh, Teresa and I and our, our family, we've lived in California. I actually grew up in California, but we lived in California during the time of the Loma Prieta earthquake, which struck the world during the World Series at like 5.01 p.m. or something in uh, 1989. And uh, if you talk to people who were in California at the time, you could say, hey, where were you when that, is, when that earthquake struck? I bet you they could tell you exactly where they were, what they were doing. In fact, I could tell you what I was doing. My wife, Teresa, and uh, one of our sons, Nathan, was outside in the driveway because some friends had, the, a, friend and, a friend of ours and her son, they were out there also. They were talking out on the driveway. And Luke and uh, our other two children were in the living room watching cartoons. And I was going from the bathroom, excuse me, from the garage past where those kids were watching cartoons going up to my bathroom because our toilet, I had to take the toilet off the floor. Uh, Apparently somebody had flushed Big Bird down the toilet. And uh, we had had some problems. Big Bird was causing some issues. And so we had to extract him from the toilet. Um, but anyway, so I was on my way to remove Big Bird. Actually, I removed the toilet because he was stuck down in the neck. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, that earthquake hit, and it almost knocked me to, my, to the ground. And, and my daughter had just had to clean up her room, and all of a sudden, her room was a disaster again. And uh, it was just it was amazing. I, you know, I still vividly remember that moment that that earthquake struck. It's, it's burned in my memory. Probably all of us, can remember where we were when 9-11 happened, when we heard the news of it. I, I still remember the moment I found out about it, and you probably can too. Well, this earthquake was large enough that about 300 years after it occurred, Zechariah prophesies, he refers to it in his prophecy about the day of the Lord. In Zechariah 14, verse 5, he says, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. 
so that, that was a prophecy Zechariah was mentioning, and he, he refers back to, 300 years later, refers to the earthquake of, that occurred during the days of King Uzziah. Uh, archaeologists have been able to de- date that earthquake to approximately 760 B.C. And so Amos starts this book, and he gives us a date. It was two years before the big one. <laughs> you know, that's what we call the earthquake, right? The big one. And so everybody knew they could think back to that. Well, verse 2, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. You know, two years after that big one struck, and then uh, Amos, or two years before, Amos gives this prophecy, and uh, you know that the, the Lord roars from Zion. It's, it's, it's a speaking about God's judgment, roaring in judgment, and the people are mourning when God's judgment comes in, and uh, he mentions Mount Carmel. Now, Carmel, the name of that mountain, is fruit, means fruitful land, and it was a beautiful place. I've actually been on top of Mount Carmel before, and it, it is very beautiful up there. Uh, it's a prominent position in Israel. It's mentioned a lot of times in scriptures. It's withering or it's blossoming tended to be used in scriptures as a sign of God's blessing or God's judgment. And in this case, Carmel is withering. So it's a sign of the Lord, a sign of judgment from the Lord. So that earthquake, it's almost like, you know, it's it's reminding them basically. And the interesting thing in this book Amos is going to repeat this phrase, thus says the Lord, about 42 times in this Bible. It's a very important thing. Uh, And so now Amos proclaims God's judgments against the nations surrounding Israel there in verse 3. And so it says in verse 3, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Here's another phrase that will be repeated through most of these prophecies. For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now, it's not that God had this little checkoff list and they had committed four sins, basically, and so now judgment is coming. But it's a Hebrew way of saying that the three sins, it represents multiple transgressions. It was enough to incur God's wrath. Uh, You know, the cup of God's wrath, if you will, it was full at this point, the multiple sins. The fourth sin just adds to what has already accumulated, and now that cup of God's wrath is not only full, but it's overflowing. In other words, they've tipped the scales. God's, they've committed enough, more than enough sin to warrant God's wrath. So that's kind of what that means. And so he says, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Damascus, of course, we know what Damascus is today. It's a city in Syria even today. And Gilead was not only a town, but it was also a region in the territory of the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh up there in the Northern Heights area. Uh, There's an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 7. It's a story of Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria at the time, and one of his high-ranking officials by the name of Hazael. And then Elisha, he's another character in this story, the prophet of the Lord. And there in Second uh, Kings chapter 8, it says, Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. 
And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, forty camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, so, so Elisha's answering to Hazael, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their woman with child. So Hazael said, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha. This is Hazael. And he came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me, You'll surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his place. He became king. And it says here in this prophecy, They have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. And Elisha's prophecy was fulfilled in Hazael. It was recorded in 2 Kings chapter 10, 32, and also in 13, verse 7. In 13, verse 7, it says, The king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. What Hazael did was likened to how grain was threshed. Now, what he's referring to is a wooden instrument that had iron teeth coming out of it, and then they put stones on top of it and dragged it over the sheaths to beat and to crush the grain. And Hazael beat, oppressed, and crushed the inhabitants of Gilead like the way these threshing instruments were used. That was the, that was the sin, the fourth sin, the, what, what just tipped the scales for Damascus, for Syria. Verse 4, But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Ben-Eden, uh, Beth-Eden, excuse me, the people of Syria shall go captive to Ker, says the Lord. Speaking of fire, fire in the Bible is typically mentioning about God's judgment. Breaking the bar of Damascus. You know, a bar would be what would keep a door or a gate bolted shut. And so in other words, he's going to break their protection. He's going to break their security. And then here's another phrase that's going to be repeated many times in these prophecies. Cut off the inhabitant and the one who holds the scepter. So what that means is all people, including their ruler, no one escapes from this judgment of God. The people of Syria shall go captive to Ker, says the Lord. Now, Ker is a name for Mesopotamia, and that was literally fulfilled a short time later in 2 Kings 16, verse 9. tells us the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Ker. So that's the first prophecy of one of the nations surrounding Israel. Now, can you imagine you're in Israel, you're reading this prophecy, or maybe you're hearing this prophecy of Amos. 
And he's, you, you, you can probably remember the, the terrible thing that Hazael did to the people of Gilead. I mean, it's just, it's beyond comprehension that someone would be that evil and do those things. And you're probably saying, yes, that was awesome, Amos. Keep preaching it, brother. You know, well, the prophecies continue. Amos 1 verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. So again, here's another enemy of Israel and they're getting judged. Awesome. This is probably referring to Second Chronicles 21 verse 16 and 17 where it says, Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wives so there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. And then later on in that chapter, verse 22, it tells us that Haziel, that they, they excuse me, that they, the, uh, the invaders, they murdered his other sons. So here's the judgment, verse 7. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off from the inhabitant from Ashdod, and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Again, God would cut off the inhabitant and one who holds the scepter. All people, including their rulers, are judged here. But there's one other thing here. It says, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. And so that means there wouldn't be any surviving Philistines. Now, if you know your history of the land of Israel, even though the, the Romans, you know, they renamed the land of Israel to Palestina, and it was actually named after the Philistines. And the Palestinians that are there today, they're not descendants of the Philistines. The Philistines as a people, they no longer exist on earth. So verse 9, another judgment. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now Tyre was a nation that was just north of Israel, Tyre and Sidon. In Jeremiah 47, verse 4, Jeremiah is prophesying uh, regarding the destruction of the Philistines, and he mentions that Tyre and Sidon were helpers and that they aided the Philistines. So it's quite possible when these things happened that Tyre joined in with them and, and was partners in what the Philistines did. And it says that they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. What is that referring to? It's probably referring back to King Hiram, who is the king of Tyre. He had a friendship with David and his son Solomon. Hiram had made a covenant with David, and later on when Solomon went to build temple, he sent lumber for the building of the temple because he recognized God's blessing on David. He had made a covenant of peace with Israel at that time. But now they've broken that covenant. They didn't remember that covenant. What's the judgment? Verse 10, But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. It's interesting. The destruction of Tyre was prophesied in detail by Ezekiel. Remember when we went through Ezekiel, chapter 26. It says that God would use the Babylonians to destroy Tyre. Now, it's the interesting thing is, there was kind of like two cities 
of named Tyre. One was on the shore, and there was another one that was kind of like a little island offshore of the, of the, of the onshore one. And Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, the town that was on the land, but he couldn't reach the, sh- the one that was offshore because he didn't have a navy. And so they survived the Babylonian you know, onslaught. Well, years later, Alexander the Great came through, and although he didn't have a navy either, but this guy must have been a little bit smarter than Nebuchadnezzar, he took the ruins of the city of Tyre that was on the land that had already been destroyed. He took those, and he started just dumping it in the water, dumping it, dumping it up, and he built a land bridge to the island city of Tyre, and then he was able to destroy it. And Ezekiel prophesied that Tyre would become a place for fishermen to spread their nets out uh, to dry on the ruins of the city. And that's exactly what happened. The, the city of Tyre was no more, and even I don't know if it's even today, but back then they, they took their nets and they would dry them out on the, on the ruins of Tyre to dry out. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Now, Edom referred to Israel's brother there is because Edom is the land of Esau. Esau and Jacob were brothers. The man Jacob, his name was changed by God to Israel. Yeah, his name was changed to Israel. So it's literally the man Israel's brother with Esau. So these people are related down all the way back to Jacob and Esau. And you know the story. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because Jacob stole his birthright blessing. And that grudge lasted for many years. In fact, that's why Jacob had to leave the land to go live with his uncle. But eventually, when they were older men, that grudge subsided according to what scriptures tells us. The problem was, however, you know, Esau had children. And those children grew up in a home where the father was angry, where the father was unforgiving towards his brother. And they picked up on that. And yeah, later on in life, Esau, apparently, according to scriptures, you know, he reconciled with his brother. But apparently his children didn't because they grew up in that home. And they picked up on it, and they carried it down through the generations. You know, sometimes we as parents think that we have no influence. You know, that, 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 that things that we do in our household, it doesn't affect anybody. But you know what? Your children are there, and they pick up on those things. They pick up on our attitudes. They pick up on our anger, our unforgiveness, our bitterness. They, they pick up on that. And so even Esau, he, he reconciled, but his kids, it, it, it affected his kids down through the generations. They held on to their anger. They cast off all pity. That means they suppressed all natural feelings of pity for a brother in distress. And they held on to their anger and they never let it go. About 400 years after Jacob and Esau had lived and died, in Numbers chapter 20, when the children of Israel, you know, they, they, were, they were delivered from bondage in, in Egypt, and Moses was leading them through the promise or through the wilderness. And they get to the land of Edom, and Moses sends an envoy to ask permission of the king of Edom to pass through their land. He says, We're not going to take anything, we just need to pass through your land. But the king of Edom refused, and he sent an army to fight the children of Israel. 
And then later on in Second Chronicles 28.17, it records how the Edomites attacked Judah and carried away captives during the reign of King Ahaz. And then even after this prophecy of Amos, when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, the Edomites rejoiced and they encouraged the Babylonians to destroy Israel. They're like, raise it to the ground, raise it, raise it, destroy it. Well, five years after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar set his sights on Ammon and Edom and Moab, and he invaded and destroyed them also. So God's judgment was true. Verse 13, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle, and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, says the Lord. The Ammonites, they were an especially bad lot. Now, in fact, they were descended from Lot, who was Abraham's brother. So these guys all, somewhere down the line, they were all kind of related to one another. Well, the Ammonites worshipped an idol by the name of Milcom. He was an image of a man that he had a face of a, it was either a calf or an ox, and he was, he was hollow, and he had his arms outstretched. And what they would do is they would heat it up in the fire until it became red hot, and then they would place a baby in his, in his, in his blazing arms, and they would beat the drums so loud that the father wouldn't hear the scry, cries of the baby dying, you know, screaming. And, and that was their offerings to Milcom. They were especially brutal Back in the days of King Saul, Nahash the Ammonite sieged Jabez-Gilead. And the men of the city there, they said to the Ammonites, Hey, make a covenant with us. We'll serve you. And Nahash told them, I'll make a covenant with you under one condition. Each one of you gouge out your right eye. I mean, that's how vicious and how violent these people were. Well, anyway, Saul ended up delivering them, uh, King Saul. Um, But here it specifically mentions that they ripped open the women with child in Gilead. And the reason why? That they might enlarge their territory. Now this could be referring to the time when Hazael the Syrian did the exact same thing in Gilead because Ammon bordered Syria. So they, they could have joined forces. But it's interesting, Jeremiah also mentions it. In Jeremiah 49.1, against the Ammonites it says, Thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons? He has no heir, or has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad and his people dwell in its cities? They apparently did this only to lay claim to the land of Gad, and they left no living heirs you know, no, no living heirs to eventually try to reclaim their territory. That was probably why they killed those children. Well, it was such a vicious thing. They, too, would be destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. And I will cut off the, from the judge, excuse me, and I will cut off the judge from its midst, and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. Now Moab, another nation, was next to Ammon, and it was pretty much east of the Dead Sea. We have no biblical record of this prophecy regarding the king of Moab burning a king of Edom. 
So we can only speculate. Either he took the king and burned him alive in the fire, or maybe he desecrated his dead body. But in any event, on top of all Moab's other sins, this was a particularly heinous sin. They too would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And so, you know, you you hear Israel's hearing these prophecies of Amos, and they're probably cheering. They're probably like, yes, our enemies are finally getting what's coming to them. But now Amos turns to the kingdom of Judah and to Israel. Now it's getting a little closer to home. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept His commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. You know, of all the other nations mentioned before Judah, none of them were judged with regard to God's law. Why? Because they were ignorant of God's law. God had not revealed His will to the heathen nations at that time, only to Israel and Judah. The Apostle Paul addresses this issue. It's in Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Let me read it to you. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of their law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." None of those nations, they didn't have the law of God. They didn't have God's written word. But you know what? None of them, they all knew that taking a sword and ripping open a pregnant woman's baby, a belly, excuse me, to kill the baby, and obviously kill the woman too, they knew that that was wrong. In all cultures, doing things like that is evil. They were sinning against the standard God had placed in all men, whether they have the law or not, and that's called the conscience. And the reality is, even among people who have never heard the gospel, you know, sometimes you hear that, people say, what about the people over here that never heard about Jesus Christ? You mean they're guilty too? Well, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. There's nobody who's innocent. Because even people, without knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, people everywhere, they've sinned against their own conscience. And if they say, I never have, well, they're lying. But Judah had not only their conscience to guide them, they had God's revealed will, His written word to guide them, and they sinned against God's word. Jesus said in Luke 12, 47, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself would do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committing things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For to everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So what was Judah guilty of? They despised the law of the Lord. 
They didn't keep his commandments. That, that means basically they rejected the authority of God's word in their lives and they did their own will in place of God's will. And it says their lies lead them astray. Lies which their fathers followed. What lies? Well, the same lie that's been the same ever since Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden is the lie that the serpent said to, to Eve. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You will not surely die, he says later on. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, taking God's word and twisting it to rationalize and excuse their own sin. That's what they did. Israel, I can imagine the people of Israel are probably like, oh, wow, that's pretty severe for Judah. But now God's going to speak to them. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Verse 6, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals, they perverted justice. The judges of Israel were so corrupt that for the price of a sandal, and, and when you look up that word sandal, it means the most basic footwear that was around in the Middle East. It would almost be in our vernacular for the pair of a, of a price of flip-flops. I mean, that's how little it, it would take for a judge to receive a bribe and rule against a righteous person in favor of the wicked one who, who bribed him. That's how corrupt those judges were. Verse 7, They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. The dust of the earth on the head of the poor, that, what that's a picture of is when, when, a, when a poor person or anyone's in mourning, they would throw dust up over their head. And uh, it's interesting, they coveted after the most worthless things. Remember what I said earlier. They were a very prosperous nation during this time. Very interesting. This is what Albert Barnes, he's a commentator. I, I love what he says here. Covetousness. When it has nothing to feed it, craves for what is absurd or impossible. What was Naboth's vineyard to a king of Israel with his ivory palace? I mean, why did Ahab want Naboth's vineyard, if you know that story? What was Mordecai's refusal to bow to one in honor like Haman? What a trivial gain to a millionaire. The sarcasm of the prophet was the more piercing because it was so true. People covet things in proportion, not to their worth, but to their worthlessness. No one covets what he much needs. Covetousness is the sin Mostly not of those who have not, but of those who have. It grows with its gains, is the less satisfied the more it has to satisfy it, and attests to its own unreasonableness by the uselessness of the things it craves for. So even in their prosperity, they were coveting the most worthless things. It says, a man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They practiced Immorality. In fact, it's the kind of immorality that Paul in 1 Corinthians says it's not even named among the Gentiles what these guys were doing. 
Verse 8, they lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Now, according to Jewish law, if a man owed you money and he couldn't pay it back, he was too poor, he could whatever, he could give you his clothes or his outer garment in a pledge. But the thing is, that was what he slept in. That's what he kept himself warm at night. So God says, you can't hold it beyond one day. You can only, you can only hold it for a day. At the end of the day, you've got to give it back to that man because that's all he has. Well, instead of returning it to the person, they would take that garment and they'd use it to lay down by an idol altar and they would drink wine of the condemned in an idol temple. In other words, they were living a life of hedonistic luxury and pleasure at the expense of the poor. They could care less about everybody else. Verse 9, Yet it was I who destroyed the Ammonite before them, Amorite before them, excuse me, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. What God is trying to get across to Israel, God had judged and destroyed the Amorites who lived in that land that now was Israel's land for the exact same sins that now they are doing. You see, God's trying to communicate to them and to us, God doesn't play favorites. He judged, if he judged the Amorites for those sins, what makes them think he will not judge Israel for practicing those same sins? That's something that we need to get in our own hearts. You know, we're held to a much higher standard because we have God's word. We know what God's will is. And if God judges the evil around the wicked people around us for the sins that they do, what makes us think that we're going to escape if we haven't, you know, confessed them and we haven't been born again? Chapter eleven, or excuse me, verse eleven, not chapter eleven. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel? Says the Lord. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, "Do not prophesy." Now the Nazarites, the Nazarene, that was, a, that was an oath that young men took who choose to, chose to live a life fully devoted to the Lord. And what Israel was doing was they were corrupting those who were trying to live a life of consecration. And the prophets like Amos that God had raised up, they were opposed by the people of Israel. They didn't want to hear what God had to say about their sins, so they told them to shut up, basically. Finally, God says here in verse 13, Behold... I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. In other words, God is saying, man, I am burdened to the point of being crushed by the weight of your sins. They are so many. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus died on the cross for your and my sins, in Luke 22, verse 41, It says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweats became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus Christ, on the night that he was going to be crucified, he could feel that burden of the world's sins being weighed upon him. He could feel that God, that, that moment that when he would be forsaken from the Father, when the moment that relationship would be broken because of sins, it was so heavy. He wasn't crying, he wasn't sweating and stuff because of the pain of the crucifixion, although that was excruciating. That word actually means out of the cross. 
you know, the pain was horrendous. But that wasn't what Christ was, was in agony about. It was that weight of your and my sin upon him. Verse 14 of Amos chapter 2, Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. So for Israel, they had tipped the scales. It was overflowing. Judgment was coming, and it came in the form of the Assyrian captivity. God was weighed down with all their sins. You know, for you and I, we've committed multiple sins. For three sins and for four, we've tipped the scales of God's judgment. And God has felt the weight of your and my sins upon Him too. In fact, in Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Can you imagine the weight of the sin of the world being put on one person, on Jesus Christ? In verse 11 of Isaiah 53, it says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So Assyria, all these nations, Judah, they were judged by God. They were punished by God. And we're no different than them. We deserve God's just wrath on our lives. But praise God that Jesus Christ took your and my sins... He put them on Himself, and He died on the cross for our sins. So this morning, you and I can say, Thank you, Jesus, for setting me free from my sins, for redeeming me. Praise God. What a blessing you and I have. I I just hope you can just remember that and focus on that this morning. Because when we worship God, you know, that's what we're worshiping. That's what we're praising Him for, for the things that He's done. And there's no greater gift than He's given us in our salvation. So praise God and thank Him for that. Why don't you stand? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. You know, this morning, if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I I, I hope the Holy Spirit has just laid on your heart and shown you exactly what's taking place. Where where God sent His Son and, and allowed His Son to bear your and my sins upon Him and to die on the cross for our sins. He took that punishment upon Himself. But praise God, He rose again from the dead. You know, the reason why He rose again from the dead, it was a sign to you and I that God accepted His sacrifice for our sins. God was pleased with his sacrifice, and he rose again from the dead. And now he offers that salvation to anyone who will turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and you rose again. Come into my life and be the Lord of my life. And if you would say that this morning in prayer, I guarantee Jesus Christ will enter into your heart and your life. You'll be born again. You'll have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you'll spend eternity in heaven with him. And so this morning, if you've never 
prayed that prayer. I'm going to pray this morning, and I'm going to give you an opportunity here to pray that prayer along with me. And for those of you that might be listening to this on, on the Internet, to say the same thing. You, if you're in your, in your house right now or on your car driving along the way and you're hearing this message, you can pray to receive Jesus Christ too. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I never understood the fact that you took my sins, all of them, and and what it cost and how much it weighed upon you. Because, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that I've grieved you and I've weighted you down with so many sins. I confess those sins to you, Lord God. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And Jesus, I thank you that you took my sin and you put them on you, Lord. You became sin who knew no sin for us. Lord Jesus, you died and paid the price that I couldn't pay. And I thank you that you rose again from the dead. And this morning, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins and I ask you to come into my heart and I pray that you would be my Lord and my Savior, that I would follow you all the days of my life. And I thank you for saving me, Jesus. Father, I thank you for anyone who maybe said that prayer this morning. And Lord, you know their hearts. And Lord, I, I, I pray that you might just strengthen them and encourage them and fill them with your Holy Spirit even now, Lord. And this morning, Lord, I pray your blessing upon each and every person here in this room. I ask that you might go with them, Lord, that we might have that renewed sense of joy, the joy of our salvation that you paid for us. And so we rejoice and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.